Right. Welcome to week one of a 13-week journey through three chapters in the Bible. Again, my name is pronounced Kaylee. You can thank the Scottish for that and my dad. But you guys, I'm so excited for us to journey through these chapters together. These are some of the most famous and familiar chapters of really the whole Bible. Whether you think of like children's felt board stories or paintings and mosaics. I mean, if you go to most places in the world today, you will probably see some imagery of these stories. And so I'm really excited to take so much time to really dig in and see what might be under the surface for us. So welcome. I'm pumped. Uh, tonight is just the introduction. So you are expected to not have come in here with any previous knowledge of Genesis 1 through 3. So if that's you, you're safe and welcome. Tonight, when I'm talking to you, we're going to cover three things. How we're going to do this study, what a week is going to look like for you, and then finally, we're going to turn our attention to Genesis and begin to ask some framing questions, like who wrote it, who's written to, stuff like that. And then you'll break into your groups, you'll go through the discussion guide that's provided in your workbook, and then you will end your time together by reading Genesis 1 through 3 that's provided in your workbook. Sound good? Sweet. So first, how we're gonna do this study. This study is primarily designed to challenge us in two ways. First is to challenge us to meditate, and second is to begin asking different questions. So challenge us to meditate. Who of you guys likes to hike or camp? A couple, okay, any backpackers? Ooh, we got one, okay. So I like hiking, I don't like camping. I, my sister's trying to get me to backpack with her. We'll see. But imagine I told you, hey, I know this amazing spot and your life will be changed forever. Come with me. And I take you into the middle of nowhere on top of a mountain. It's totally beautiful, but it's been hours since we've seen any civilization. And up there, it's, the view is spectacular. And there's a meadow, and the trees are swaying in the breeze. There's all these wildflowers that are in full bloom. It's a bird watcher's paradise. And there in front of you is a tent, and an axe, and a shovel, and some firewood, and lots of canned goods to survive. And I say, all right, I'll see you in three days. I'll pick you up in three days. Have fun. What will those three days look like for you? Some of you will be bird watching, unashamedly. Some of you will be making a bouquet of wildflowers. Some of you will just be sleeping the whole time. And it will be a beautiful, peaceful, restful place. Now what if, before I left, I said, hey, that shovel over there, you're gonna wanna use it because there's gold 10 feet down. What will your three days look like? <laughs> you will not be making a bouquet of wildflowers. You will not be sleeping. You'll, you won't be napping. You will be looking at the dirt. You will be sweating. Your body will feel uncomfortable. But it will be worth it. And for a long time, all that you're going to see is what looks like unvaluable dirt. 
but you're doing the effort because you are hoping that if you keep going, you will eventually strike gold. And this is sometimes how we approach scripture. From the surface reading, it is beautiful. It is beautiful. It is life-changing. This is a book that was truly written by God himself. And from the surface down, it is a work of art, and it is challenging to us. But a lot of times, our engagement with the text ends at the surface. And there is gold deep down. But it takes work, and it takes time to find. And that is where meditation comes in. We live in an era of instant gratification. And if I'm honest, a lot of times whenever I read scripture, I will read a chapter, maybe think about it a little bit, and then the minute I close my Bible, I stop engaging with the text until the next morning. Or if something bothers me enough to actually research and look something up, whether it confuses me or offends me, then a lot of times I will maybe Google it or go to a well-known scholar that I trust and see what they wrote about it. And if it sounds reasonable enough, I'll go, okay, that's what it means. Boom. Thus ends my engagement with the text. Because someone else said so. I want us to challenge ourselves to be uncomfortable, to meditate, and to think a long time about these things. When you are confused, if you are offended, to keep being confused and offended, to not just brush it aside and try to stop feeling that way, but dig deeper and ask why. Keep reading scripture and ask why. And so I have one big ask as we journey on this road of meditation. And this is gonna make probably most of you feel very uncomfortable. I wanna ask that over the course of these 13 weeks, you do not consult commentaries, articles, podcasts, sermons, or books regarding these chapters. It's not just because I wanna see you squirm. It's because I want you to have firsthand knowledge of what the Bible says. I don't want you to just take it for someone else's word I want you to know the word. The Lord said to love him with all of our heart, soul, and mind. And this is part of loving him with our mind. To challenge ourselves. To be okay with not immediately knowing. And so if you have a study Bible, just put it on your shelf. It's too tempting to look at the notes. You can pull it down in 13 weeks but I want you to have the time to wrestle through these things yourself and have the people you actually know around you in your groups help inform you, help answer some of those questions. Scripture was written to be read in community, and here we are in community. So please, no commentaries or anything like that, but I implore you, read cross-references and other translations. And if you're nerdy enough, read a concordance. They're on Bible Hub or Blue Letter Bible. They're really helpful. But use the resources of the Bible. Let the Bible translate the Bible as much as you can. 
And so some of your Bibles, might, you might see the cross-references in one of the margins. That's other places in Scripture where the similar imagery or words are used. Read those if you have big questions or if you feel uncomfortable. Or ask some of the people in your group. Um, a note while I'm here about the translation that is in your book. So in your homework, as you're asked to read portions of Genesis 1 through 3 or to underline and mark things up, it's provided in the back of your homework. And it is translated specifically for this study, specifically for a deep dive study. So it's not, as soon as you read it, you're gonna be like, ooh, I've never read, the, read this version before. It's not designed to be really approachable to just anyone. It's specifically for a deep study. So it is as close to the original Hebrew as I could get it without changing English grammar. And some of it I just left untranslated. So you're welcome for that bit of confusion. But it's all intentional. Trust the process. So this study is designed to help us learn how to meditate, but then also to ask different questions. So Tim Mackey, he once used this illustration. He said, imagine that you go to a coffee shop, so maybe you're at Starbucks, and you grab your pumpkin spice latte, because it's that season. And you sit down, and you sit behind these two women, and they're talking pretty loudly, so you're just overhearing everything they're saying. And one of the women says, I'm gonna kill him. What do you do? Do you call the cops? Well, it's six English words, I'm going to kill him. She could be actually planning murder, in which case, yes, you need to call the cops. She could have just gotten in a fight with her husband, and when she gets home, she's really going to give it to him. She could be talking about a friend who is really bothering her, and she's using dark sarcasm. Maybe she's an author, and she's talking to her friend about how she's going to kill off one of the main characters. Maybe she's a new-time pet owner, like she just bought a dog, and it's way more responsibility than she thought it was going to be. And she's afraid that she's going to kill this creature. Six English words. And we already have five ways of interpreting it. How do we know how to interpret it? You know who in that cafe knows how to properly interpret? The person she was speaking to. They know how to interpret her words. Context matters. It completely affects and changes how we understand and interpret So we want to ask questions about context. The Bible is for us, but it was not originally written to us. So take, for instance, the book of Obadiah. Who of you has read Obadiah? <laughs> it's in the Minor Prophets. But Obadiah did not have Kaylee Schaefer in mind when he wrote down this prophecy. That'd be weird. The Lord had me in mind, but Obadiah didn't. <laughs> so the Bible, every bit of it is breathed out by God. It is inspired by God. It is for us, but it was not initially written to us. 
And so we need to go through the humble work of asking, what did this mean to the people who first read this, who first heard these words? We also are going to be asking questions about how these words are fulfilled in Jesus. So Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 said that he came to fulfill the law and the prophets. And so we want to ask how these three chapters find their fulfillment and fullness in the person and work of Christ. So that's how we're going to do this study. Buckle in for a really interesting 13 weeks. So then what is a week going to look like for you? There are four days of homework. And usually, not always, but usually, day one is just going to be observation. We want to just get an idea for what it actually says. So we'll take a small chunk of scripture and just really make sure we know what it actually says. You'll be shocked. And so on that day, you will be asked to underline, to paraphrase, maybe fill in a blank, and even, yes, draw. So some of you are excited and some of you are like, eh. This is all intentional. This is to make sure we actually know what it says, to slow down. Day two is Old Testament interpretation because we want the Bible to interpret the Bible. And so we'll turn to the other Old Testament authors and see how did they use the imagery and the words that are in Genesis 1 through 3. How did they understand it? And then day three, we're going to turn to the New Testament with New Testament interpretation. How did Christ and the New Testament authors see Jesus as the fulfillment of these words? And then finally on day four is application. In light of who Jesus is, in light of God's character that we see through this whole study, how should we walk away changed? Because it is only in light of who God is that we will be changed. So that's how we're going to do the study, and that is what a week is going to look like. You guys ready to actually turn to Genesis? <laughs> so framing questions. These are in your homework under week one. We're going to ask four basic questions. Who wrote Genesis? Who was it written to? What is the genre? And what is the purpose? So first, who wrote Genesis. Moses is the primary author. So while there were likely other people who were involved, Moses is the one who was the primary source of this book. Primary author. And really famous guy throughout the Bible. But for those of you who are unfamiliar or just need to catch up, Moses was an Israelite, but he was raised in a royal Egyptian household for 40 years. So he was highly educated. But then after 40 years, he decided to take justice into his own hands and murdered an Egyptian. Fled for his life from Egypt and went to live in the middle of nowhere, not on a mountain with a meadow, but in the wilderness, shepherding his father-in-law's sheep. Dirty, smelly sheep. We paint sheep like they're cute and soft. They are not soft. Have you felt wolves? <laughs> They're not soft. And he did that for 40 years. So he was 
in this kind of cozy set-up position in Egypt, he was highly educated, but very humbled. His life took a very drastic turn, and it stayed that way for a long time. But then in that wilderness, famous scene of the burning bush, the tree that's burning yet not consumed, he encounters God. And God calls him to go back to Egypt and bring his people out of slavery. And so he went and he brought them out of slavery right back to that wilderness where he had been shepherding sheep. And he just stayed there with them for, you guessed it, 40 more years. And he got to deal with all their problems. This was someone who spoke face-to-face with God. And he is the author of the first five books of your Bible. So as you think about your Bible on your shelf or in your hand, or on your phone, this is the person who wrote a really sizable chunk of it. But who was he writing to? Well, he was writing to Israelite slaves who had come out of Egypt. So they were slaves. These people, their entire life, for generation after generation after generation, their value was based purely on how many bricks can you make. Imagine if that was your life. Your value as a human being is how many bricks can you make today? They had no holidays. They had no weekends. And if you don't meet quota, your life and your family's life is at risk. Who you are is based purely off of production and performance, what you can bring to the table. Why should we let you live? That's your life. That was your parents' life. They were slaves. But they were also slaves who had experienced genocide. So the Pharaoh leading up to Moses declared that every male Hebrew or Israelite boy would be put to death on the spot. When they weren't, he said, any Egyptian can just take a child and throw it into the Nile to drown. So put yourself in their shoes. You were born right before that decree went out. And you had two little brothers. The first little brother you had, when he was born, your parents were so anxious and you didn't understand why. But then a couple weeks later, you came back home from playing and your parents were just crumpled on the ground, weeping uncontrollably. You asked them where your little brother was and they couldn't even bring themselves to answer. And a couple years later, your mother gets pregnant again. Another boy. And now you're just as anxious as they are because now you know why they were so afraid. But this time, you were there when it happened. You saw the Egyptian rip your brother right out of your mother's arms, run to the river, and throw him into the water. You watched your mother race to the water's edge 
and wade through the reeds, trying to get him. But she couldn't get there in time. This is a traumatized people. And it had been hundreds of years since their God spoke to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I don't know about you guys, but if my ancestors 400 years ago had a phenomenal quiet time or spiritual experience, my life is unaffected by it. And for the course of those hundreds of years, they were surrounded by Egyptian culture. And this is at a time of human history when there is no distinction between church and state. There is no distinction between the sacred and the secular. Everything is sacred. All culture is religious. So imagine them growing up surrounded by this huge cultural powerhouse in the ancient Near East. Think of the festivals they would have seen, the statues that daily loomed over them, the stories that they overheard their Egyptian neighbors sharing, the festive foods they would have smelled and their parents shoo them away from, the parades, the songs, every aspect of culture that they were surrounded by, and all of it, all of it, is preaching theology. Who are you? And what are the gods like? What is human civilization supposed to be and do? And meanwhile, their God is silent. Until very suddenly, through Moses, their God enters in and systematically executes each one of those gods that they grew up hearing so much about in the 10 plagues. The 10 plagues was a public execution of Egyptian gods. And their God brings them into the middle of nowhere where they think surely they're gonna die. And he introduces himself to them. And he says that he's gonna lead them to the land of Canaan, a land that is again, completely influenced and engulfed in the culture and religion of Samaria and Babylon. Again, two huge cultural powerhouses. These people are experiencing major identity crisis. And Genesis 1 through 3 was for them. So then how was it written? Is this poetry? Is this discourse? Because that's really going to change how we go about interpreting. The genre of Genesis 1 through 3 is what is called exalted narrative. So it's a subgroup of narrative. Think of like narrative or storytelling being this big umbrella term. And underneath one of the categories is exalted narrative. And it is not just storytelling for the sake of st telling stories. So, like history is, you gotta know facts for the sake of knowing facts. I didn't like my history classes, so maybe I just got beef with it. But it's not written like an American history class. Just you know these facts just because you have to know these facts. 
It's not entertaining. It's not for the sake of entertaining. It's not like Cinderella. Cinderella is entertaining to kids. But no one is watching Disney Cinderella and going, hmm, why was it a pumpkin? <laughs> it's just storytelling for the sake of telling stories. This is not that. Exalted narrative is narrative that is used as a tool for theological assertions. So it's storytelling with a purpose. Storytelling for the sake of communicating theological truths. Moses writes these stories. Not all of them, these ones. He chose these ones. And he wrote them this specific way. Each word thought for, meticulous. Why did he write these stories? And why did he write them this way? So what's the purpose of Genesis 1 through 3? It is to introduce a very different God who is building a very different kingdom through these people. So I have three words for you. The great symbiosis. Say symbiosis. Probably haven't heard of that since science classroom. The great symbiosis. This is the foundation for all of human civilization, the whole known world at this time. It is the fabric of all society. Every view is built off of this, the great symbiosis. And it goes like this. The gods, there are many of them, and they're a lot like humans. They get hungry. They need to eat. If they don't eat, they will die. They drink. They get tired and have to rest, take naps. They wear clothing. They have houses. They build things. But they're really powerful. But you know, making all this food is really toilsome. We've been doing it for over a thousand years. And it is brutal and such hard work. We hate it. We hate it. <laughs> we hate it. Does anyone have an idea how we can pass this off? Because I don't want to do this anymore. Who? <laughs> I have an idea. What if, now bear with me, what if we make an animal and they do all of it for us? They're the ones who feed us and they give us stuff to drink, and they build us houses that we can rest in, and they provide everything for us. They'll be our personal chefs. That is a good idea. Yeah. And if they don't, then we'll send a plague. Yeah, yeah. Because if they don't feed us, we could die. We need them to feed us, and we need a place to, li to live. Boom, humans. And it is humanity's job to feed the gods. Why do you exist? To feed the gods. Your sacrifices that you give is the barbecue that sustains their life. And so long as you sustain their life, they will sustain your life. 
If you keep your end of the bargain, they will provide rain to grow the food and help your cattle and sheep to reproduce, help you to be fruitful and bear many children. It's a very mutually beneficial situation. Yeah, it's very symbiotic, right? And this is humanity's relationship to the gods. The foundation of human civilization. How loved do you feel? Do you feel special? Beyond that, there were both national and family deities. Not enough to just have bunches of gods. So your nation, they worship like a really strong god. <clears throat> They're really powerful. But they are busy. They can't be bothered by your nagging prayers. So there's, there's weaker gods. They're not as strong. And they can't do as much. But, you know, it's what we've got available. So... You got your family deity, it's a lower level deity, but they listen to your daily prayers and needs because they've got nothing else to do. So you, you feed them, you offer them tribute and sacrifice and everything like that. You make sure they're on your good side. But you also make sure that you offer sacrifices and feed the big God because <laughs> you do not want to be on his bad side, right? And this is humanity's relationship with the gods. And then the Lord steps on the scene. And he says things like, I have no need of the bulls from your stalls or the goats from your pens. If I was hungry, I wouldn't tell you. But the world is mine and everything in it. He says things like, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where would you build a house for me? Haven't my hands made all these things? Here is a God who demands to be both their nation's patron deity as well as their family and personal deity. He demands that you nag him. He wants to hear all of the nagging. And he will have it no other way. Here is a God who is in need of nothing? This is not the great symbiosis. He does not need you. Here is a God who is very different in building a very different kingdom. Not one that is striving for greatness and power where your value is determined based on your production or how impressive you can do. He is establishing a kingdom where everyone is striving to serve. A kingdom where the least is the greatest. Here is a God who is in need of nothing, but he sacrifices everything to the unworthy and he calls his people to do likewise. So Genesis 1 through 3 is introducing a very different God who is building a very different kingdom, starting with these people.
Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word that you didn't leave us to blindly wonder who you are or what you're like. You haven't left us to blindly wander about wondering about all the gods and how we can appease them and what our purpose is, but you have answered that. Lord, we thank you for your humility that you stoop down to speak to us mere humans. That you yourself took the place of the least in the person of Christ. Lord, I ask that you would bless these 13 weeks. That you would bless these small groups tonight. That our eyes would be open to the true treasure of your word and the treasure of who you are, Lord Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You are dismissed.